We talk a lot about social emotional learning in the whole child, but the whole child includes the family. These aren't my words. They came from today's guest when she appeared on the show way back on episode 25. We went on to discuss what a partnership is and how teachers thinking needed to change. We concluded by noting that the first step in building better partnerships was to view parents as equal partners, not as adversaries. It was a rich episode, but we really only scratched the surface of parent partnerships. So today we try to get below that surface with our very special guest, Dr. Leanne Alford Keith. Hello colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Frederick Buskey. The goal of this podcast is to help improve the life and leadership of assistant principals. And today I'm joined by Leanne Alford Keith, the Senior Administrator for the Northern Area Superintendent in Wake County Public School System in Raleigh, North Carolina. Leanne is here with us today to identify structural changes that can help lead to better parent partnerships. Welcome back, Leanne. I've been looking forward to this episode since we wrapped up the last one. I'm very glad to be back with you again as well. Yeah, so uh, let's start by reminding us of where your passion for these partnerships comes from. Absolutely. So I originally um, saw the benefits of effective partnership as a high school teacher. Um, we tend to think an education of family engagement is something that is more elementary. Uh, but personally, as a high school teacher, I saw family engagement and partnership with families as a big part of my work that made a difference for my high school students. And uh, then um, it also has been a large part of my work since I've come to Central Office in Wayne County and was my uh, disquisition research. That's a dissertation in practice at Western Carolina University. I did my disquisition work on how to more equitably engage families. Okay. And so we always like to start with celebrations. What are you celebrating today? I have a brand new nephew who was just oh. born last week, um, and uh, my my life goal is fabulous aunt. So I'm very excited to have um, another nephew to add to that pile of kids that I love on. Oh, that's excellent. Okay, so this is usually the part of the show where I enumerate the four principles of strategic leadership, but today's show is about structures. So instead, I wanna do a quick rehash of the six dimensions of organizations. This is just a 40,000 foot view. And if any of you listening would like a deeper dive, you can go back to episode one of this whole podcast series where I really look at those structures and the six dimensions. But briefly, six dimensions of organizations is a really simplified model of organizations that if you think about a pyramid, the top of the pyramid is purpose, and that's what should drive our organizations. And then the three corners, talking about a three-sided pyramid, the three corners are people, structures, and resources. In the ideal world, those people, structures, and resources are all aligned to the purpose. And so when everything's working smoothly, we have what we call that aligned organization, and that's a great place to work. Incidentally, the other two dimensions of organizations are the internal um, dynamics, which are shaped by the degree of alignment of these pieces. And then the, the sixth part are the external um, dynamics, the things that we have very little control over, but seem to impact us greatly. 
So today, what the work of leadership then is actually using change processes to create better alignment in your organization. If you really step back, that's why we do change. That's why we do leadership. It's all about the idea of creating an organization where our people, our structures, and resources are all aligned with what we're trying to do. And because organizations don't like to stay in alignment and it's constant work, that's really why we have leadership. So last time we really talked more about the people because we were talking about teachers and we were talking about attitudes and, and how we need to view these parent partnerships. But we also know that there are a lot of structural issues in school that make it different and difficult or inhibit um, parent partnerships. So that's what we really want to focus on today because I think it's those structures, which is where administrators can really make a bigger difference. So let's start there. Let's actually start with purpose. I think it goes back to the quote of yours we began with as the show opened, right? We talk a lot about social emotional learning and the whole child, but the whole child includes the family. I, I love that quote. This is a mind shift. The child and the family are one. So whatever purpose we have in educating children, developing family partnerships is a part of the same purpose. So we know that taking an adversarial view and undervaluing families are two mindsets that undermine our ability to build those good partnerships. But what are the structures that create challenges? Yeah, so some of those structures are the way that schools are set up. Um, most specifically that schools are ran by the, all of us who have all of these degrees, you know, teachers have these degrees. And so by a certain amount, regardless of your past, you have a certain amount of privilege if you are working in a school and are a school leader. And, you know, you may have overcome a lot of obstacles to get there, but we have this structural dynamic where all of the families have not been afforded the opportunities that are all of us who are educators have had. And so we have first like a power dynamic uh, between uh, school leaders, teachers, and families. And, uh, you know, that can also, that can be different because many of our families are also educated, but they are not the ones in control of the decision-making of the organization. Um, uh, so even, even educated families who have plenty of access do not necessarily get partnership and the way that we make decisions or the type of information that we solicit from them. So the power dynamics are the, the first element of, of structure that is a barrier. Another element of structure that is a barrier is that many of our teacher and school leader preparation programs do not include any learning on family engagement. And so many people do not know how um, for, through no fault of their own, they don't know how to engage families. That's not something they've ever had any learning about. So, so that's a structural barrier. And then a final structural barrier is our own mindset of when and how families should be engaged. And so if we tend to think of only the events as opportunities for family engagement or strictly the conferences as opportunities of family engagement, then that is also a structure that is creating barriers because truthfully, any day is an opportunity for family engagement, whether that be a conversation, a well-planned homework assignment that engages the student and their family, 
or involving families in other structural um, decision-making organizations at the school, such as your school improvement team. Like how involved are your families? Do you have that one PTA rep who comes and never speaks? <laughs> you know, who at your school at Rubichi meeting and then eventually they stop coming because they realize their opinions never asked for and they're just one person, you know. So what are some of those structural ways that we can build in opportunities for family engagement within these structures that already exist at the school? Okay, that's a lot to unpack right off the bat. So um, let's let's start to dig in and let's start with the top first. So we talked about the power barriers and I love that one because it's, it's not the most obvious one that comes to mind, but it is, it is so real. And as much as we sometimes feel criticized as educators and we feel like everybody in the world is hating on us, we still have to recognize that there is a, a level of respect and a level of power when people come into the building to see us, right? That's, that's real. And, we, and you talked about kind of the power that comes with the credential and the position, but then also the control that we do control the setting. And I think the thing I would add to that too is, is the knowledge, right? We understand education. We know what we're trying to, to achieve and why we do certain things. And probably the vast majority of parents just aren't privileged to that kind of knowledge or understanding. So what are some things that we can do I, I just have to go back and interject because I keep seeing the, the classic special education meeting where you have the special education teacher, the assistant principal, the coordinator of special education, three regular classroom teachers, and then the parent comes in and we wonder why the parent is defensive. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, we totally outnumbered them at this table. We invited them into our setting. Um, and, and sometimes the decided certain things before they walked in the room. Yeah. And absolutely, that's a very good example. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk about that right off the bat. Then how how do we change that power dynamic so that it is less threatening for parents? Yes. So the the first thing is we we have to be doing our diversity, equity, and inclusion beliefs work. Um, that that has to be a necessary component. If you wanna work on family engagement work, you have to be doing that work um, because you need to be able to have those reflections about what privileges you may have, your positionality and what biases you may be carrying. Um, so that's that's first and, and foremost is that you, you need to be engaging in that work if you're going to reach more families. However, you know, assuming an assistant principal is engaging in that work and is aware of those things, that doesn't mean that that parent knows that about that assistant principal when they come in to meet them at that special education meeting for the very first time. Um, and so it's about the way that you welcome the family. So start off very first with the invitation. Do you say we're meeting on this time at this day and we want you there? Or do you ask the family when might be a good time for them? Do you offer a virtual option if, if your school is like, again, with structure in a place that may be inconvenient for the, the family to get across town to come to your school? Like, do you offer a virtual option and do you make it welcoming? Um, and then what type of conversations are you having? You know, you have to be really careful not to use um, the education lingo 
that excludes families too much and that you need to explain what the acronyms are, explain those things, explain it again with a special ed example, explain the assessment, what the assessments mean so that you can equal out that power dynamic. And ideally you would be doing some of that in advance. So the family feels comfortable coming into conversation um, because some of that work has already be been done. And then it's really about your partnership orientation and the types of question, questions that you're asking and the input that you're soliciting. Um, many of us have been in those meetings where the family's input was not really solicited and questions weren't really asked and the family was expected to agree passively with the educators at the table. Um, so it really is about that partnership orientation that starts with getting the family's input. And I think even when we're in those conversations and as a teacher, I always say, okay, and do you have any questions? I'm asking that question from the perspective of, do you have any questions for me because I'm the expert? Right. Right. Um, okay. So just going back to invitations too, when, when I reach out to podcast guests, I don't tell you the time that you need to... <laughs> You need to schedule, right. right? I send you a link to the calendar and then you choose, and I use the language, right? You choose a time that works, that works well for you. And so that was an aha for me right off the bat. Um, yep. And also virtual options. And I have heard a number of my special education friends talk about how much better their IEP meetings were the last couple years when they were having them remotely because parents felt much safer because the parents were in their home. They were much more comfortable. Um, it was much less physically intimidating and they were much stronger participants. And I thought that's a, that's a great example, right? Of something that we can do. That's pretty simple. Also, it, you know, it may be that a, a parent wants to come, but they get 45 minutes for their lunch break. And if you're able to have it virtually, then they can meet with you on their 45 minute lunch break from their workplace and not, you know, they wouldn't have time to drop across town to meet in person. So I do think virtual lowers some, some barriers and comfort level. I mean, we do have a research map, map called it like fortress schools. Um, and it can be uncomfortable to go into a school building um, for a family, especially depending on what their circumstances or experiences were like as a student. And so there are barriers that are lowered by virtual, but some of that is just time. And many families, um, regardless of socioeconomic status are very busy. And so it feels like we're honoring them and that we care about their time when we take some of those things, like you said, like the invitation um, and allowing you to join virtually, that sends the message that we want their input. Yeah, and I think those are systems things that school leaders can look to and address and educate teachers on and make it easier for teachers to use those practices. So just say, hey, you have to do, you know, you have to do it this way, but let's look at how can we build templates, invitation templates, how can we help with the scheduling so we're not putting it all on on teachers' backs and, and then we're communicating the value of that. Yes. All right. You also talked about lack of knowledge and preparation programs. So full disclosure, <laughs> when I got to Clemson University, I think my first or second semester, 
they said you're going to teach the the um, school parent school community relations class, and I went okay. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing because I'd never I'd never had any formal background in that, um, and started out teaching about just the actual formal part of communications and how you use online communications and that kind of stuff. But that that was really not what that class should be about. And I remember don't don't like cut out on me right here. I remember the first couple of times I taught that class telling them that, you know, school community relations is really the icing on the cake, right? That's when you've got your teachers taken care of and you focus there and you've got everything rolling well, then you can kind of look externally and, and bring parents in. And it's such an ignorant viewpoint. Um, again, people don't think ill of me. Uh, <laughs> my, my thinking was that that we had more control over teachers than we do over parents, right? So that's where you should focus your effort. But to my credit, by the end of my time teaching at Clemson, I was saying this actually is the most important class you're going to have because there, I think what flipped the switch for me was realizing that the kids that were the most vulnerable were the ones that most needed their families involved. Right. And, and so if we were really going to support our most vulnerable kids, we had to do that with families, not them as an afterthought. So I'm reformed, but that's, I think, a really good example of what happens when people get into preparation programs, um, that it's easy for us not to have expertise in the room. That's right. Yeah. And it is, and it is even... I mean, even though that course was in the curriculum, because in, in many states it would not be um, part part of, of any formal curriculum or preparation. Um, we all learn and grow. Um, and so it's very good for you to set that example um, as a leader of vulnerability and, and where we grow on things. Um, for me, it has really also been I always, I had, I did have the benefit of a master's program that gave me a class on family engagement. And we did talk about equitable family engagement, but we did not talk about the partnership orientations. So we talked about lots of things like you should be present in the community. You should be looking for community organizers. You need to engage families of the students who need you most, but it was still from the, the position of power of the school leader of what families should be invited into. And so to me, this is where my evolution has been is really, no, we need to yield to families because there are things that they know that we do not know. And I, and I think of that most with culturally sustaining pedagogy. Um, teachers want to be successful. They want to reach their challenging learners. Same for school leaders. They want their teachers to be successful. And there are things that families know about how their child learns. They hold the knowledge of their cultures. And so while we talk about culturally relevant instruction and the need to learn about cultures, families know that information. And so you can begin by soliciting that knowledge from families and that can really build teachers' efficacy and give them give them an experience that helps them feel successful. So it's a both and, not an either or. Um, you, don't, you don't have to 
think of engaging families or supporting your teachers, you can think of how will engaging families support my teachers. Okay, that will be one of the big quotes we will pull from this. <laughs> All right, uh, so let's let's go a couple examples of soliciting knowledge because I think I gave you that example of do you have any questions? That's not soliciting knowledge. So, um, as I guess we can take this tag from either the teacher viewpoint or the administrator viewpoint, right? If I want really, really want to solicit knowledge of parents and of the community, how, how do I do that? Absolutely. So one important thing um, is that we do need to broaden our thoughts of families um, and community. And so one thing to understand is that the insular narrow idea of family is very much a white middle-class idea. So many of our students have very strong familial networks that are more community. And so it, it is really important to be thinking of community partners and how am I building those community, community partnerships because a lot of community partners are supporting our students. And there are, I'm going to give two examples of places that you would bring in that type of knowledge or conversation. So the first one is equity audits. Lots of our schools are engaged in equity audits. And so they are putting together their data. They're having lots of reflective conversations, but they're having those conversations in and amongst themselves as educators. So there are just certain things that they don't know. And they say, I wonder I wonder, I wonder, well, you wouldn't have to wonder if you got more community partners in the room, they would probably be able to tell you why this population of students is very disconnected and what seems to be going wrong for them in schools. Um, that like you have community partners, so inviting community partners into things like equity audits, and then also your visioning and mission work as part of school improvement is another example because same thing. That is something that is frequently done within a group of educators, what our mission or vision is, but that leads it to be disconnected from the goals of the community because you would have a lot more community support. You would have a lot more resources. You would have more families wanting to send their child to your school if your mission and vision reflected the priorities of the families and the community. And so that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently because a lot of schools are working really hard on things like equity audits and their school improvement work, but they're spinning because they're doing it by themselves with only their educator perspective and not thinking about the knowledge that the community could bring if they were engaged in that process throughout. And that means like throughout like in the problem solving, um, because those are definitely things that, that the community can lend knowledge that the educators don't have. And so what do you think are the barriers to that? Why, why is it hard for us to have people included at the table? So it's not the way that any of us have seen it done before is the first barrier. Uh, but we all came into leadership with experiences of school improvement teams as teachers that didn't look like that. And so, you know, it's, it's not commonly done. It's not the way we've seen it done. 
is a first barrier. So it's, it's really having to get out there and start something new, um, which is always hard for a leader to put themselves out there like that. The other barrier is our families won't necessarily respond really positively at first because they may not, you will have to prove that you are, that you seriously want their input. And part of that may be going to community organizations and working in their organization in service to where they say, oh, okay, this leader is serious because yeah, I mean, if you just invite them to your school improvement meeting, they may have been to one in the past and they may not have gotten to participate. And so you're going to have to make it look different and sort of prove that their input really will be valued. And so therefore you're going to have to act upon it. Um, and then for our secondary schools, we can't forget that students are part of our community as well. So many times it may be a good idea to involve students and then once students are really involved, their families may be more inclined to be involved as well because they may say, oh, this, this school does care about our input. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I, I think too, going back to that families may not initially respond, you know, the thing that, that we need to remember is every family has a history of interaction with, with the school system. And if you're in middle school, that includes at least one, maybe more elementary school systems. And if you're a principal, it probably means, unless you're the K-1-2 principal, it probably means they've already been through at least one, right? Yeah. And, and generation, not only interacting about their child with your school, but they're everybody's product of schools too. So they have those own interactions. So there's this long history of impressions that parents have of the schools, just as we as educators have impressions of parents. Um, and, and so we need to know if we're gonna commit to really building parent partnerships, that is a long haul commitment because okay. we do have to prove that we mean it. We have to, we have to earn the trust. And I, I think part of that too is soliciting that engagement over and over again. And then when you get the negative, just take that. Don't, don't try to push back and don't try to prove, oh no, we're doing it this, just take it. And I, I think that's where if you can take the negative and then if you can ask questions following that, that show that you take it seriously and think about, okay, you know, if this isn't working for the community and these are things um, that you're concerned about, tell us, you know, what are things that would make that better? What are some things we could do? That's then when you start to build trust, when you can be vulnerable and listen and listen and listen. Um, I think that that's where that trust comes from. Is, is that sound like I'm on the right page? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. If you, and as you were saying, the history of interactions, many families also may be very accustomed to be inviting to meetings where their input isn't valued. And so, and even your involved parents, you will see that that is the case. They are used to coming to, meet, to meetings to listen to the school, what the school has to say to them. And so it will be a shift and you have to be vulnerable 
and transparent and say, yes, we are trying to shift that. And we really do want your feedback. Like you said, receive the negative feedback without arguing, but lead with questions and ask what would make it better. And then you need to implement some of those things that they suggest will make it better. And that is when you see change over time that families really feel heard. And, you know, it's interesting because in the same way that teachers will draw conclusions about certain communities, families will draw conclusions about certain schools. And so families will say, well, that principal or that school cares about our input, but that school over there doesn't care about our input. And so you first need to be known as a school that does want families' input. And then we need to be thinking about how we do that even systemically beyond schools. How do our districts respond to families' input and then also support schools such, such as schools would? Yeah. That's good. Uh, and I, one thing too, I would add, um, when, when if, we, if we're trying to get parent representation, especially if we're working with diverse communities, if we're a predominantly quite teaching and administrative group, which we probably are, and we're trying to bring in people that represent diverse viewpoints and diverse cultures in our district, don't invite just one person. So, you know, we have this room full of white people and then we have, this is our, our black community member or our Hispanic community member, right? That's, I think it, yeah, you can't engage in tokenism and you don't want to put people on an island, right? So if, if we right. are going to broaden out, let's not just bring you, let's bring you and somebody that you also know as an advocate or somebody that you work well with. So you're not alone. So nobody's alone. Right. Absolutely. Um, definitely. We want to avoid tokenism. A couple of strategies there. Um, uh, one is to identify who are your informal community leaders. Um, so this is something that's thought of very commonly in how to engage communities where English is not the primary language. But it can be true for any marginalized community that there is aunt so-and-so, who is the person that the other families go to to get connected to resources, you know, who is their advocate. And so that's who you need on your side. And so as you're, as you're getting to know families, you will begin to know who those people are. And then if you get if you get really connected to aunt so-and-so, then she can, she can bring five people with her. <laughs> and that's what you want to ask her to do uh, because uh, she is an informal community leader um, and, and therefore really represents, represents voice, um, represents her voice effectively because she is someone who is in touch um, with, with that community. And, and like I said, that's really a strategy that's frequently talked about for communities where English is not the primary language, but it can work when you think of any marginalized community of, or who are those informal community leaders. Um, and then the other strategy you really should be thinking about is how do you go into the community? And uh, so is, is there a um, sorority or fraternity that is really on the lead of service in your community? Is there a, like I grew up in a small town where it was the Lions Club. Is the Lions Club really a leader? Is there a women's club that's really a leader in the community? And then 
you go to their meetings and you go as the participant. And then after you've been involved for a while, you ask, hey, could you help my school? Not, can I come to your school and ask, can I come to the meeting and it's the first and only time I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions that benefit me. But, you know, there's, there's a concept of like an idea of work-life balance and, you know, a debate among civil leaders of whether you should or shouldn't live in your community. For the purposes of family and community engagement, you should not thinking of, be thinking about work and life as separate. You should think about being as immersed as possible in your community. And then there will be trust there. People will know that you're someone who cares for the community and therefore for the school. And you will be in touch with the community's needs if you are involved in, in organizations. Yeah, those are really good points. and. I'm, I'm doing some work in our community, um, developing some leadership programs and trying to understand better how we reach everybody in our community and struggling with these same things, right? Because the first place you go to is tokenism. Well, I'll invite the one person I know. Um, and then the second place you go is, okay, well, I'll go in and I'll ask them and, and they'll give me all the answers. So, but, and both of those are kind of take, take, take. And the answer is, okay, I need to invest in the community before I ask them to invest in me. And that's, that's not the easy one. That's the long-term build it, you know, I guess there's not, there's not shortcuts, right? The first thing is to change your mindset. And when you do that, you'll see some benefits. And then some of these other strategies that, that we've talked about, but, but really being, I think a part a vibrant part of the community so that, yeah, we are part of the community, right? That's that long-term investment piece. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be the school leader by themselves, right? Like that's what you should be working on with your teachers. How do we make our teachers part of the community? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let me run a scenario by you. This actually happened to me last spring. So we have a let's call it a middle school, um, very large Hispanic population, a, a large percentage of whom are recent immigrants to the United States. So a large group of um, English language learners. And the principal says, you know, we're struggling to really meet, meet kids' needs. Um, and we just, we need to learn more. We need to understand the community better. Where do we start? So the first thing that you start there is with your relationship building with specific families, but also with community partners. Um, in the situation that you described, there tend to be informal community leaders, just like I talked about. You know, when people decide to migrate here from another country, they go where they know someone, usually. And uh, so there's usually someone who is already sort of an informal leader, you know, getting to know that person, maybe considering some home visits to those families. Um, there is a very specific and intentional process though, because you want it to be a relational home visit. So in, in contrast, there's this um, former practice where 
schools and put their teachers on the bus and drive them around the neighborhoods of uh, their students so they could see how their students live. Well, that comes with a lot of positionality and a lot of judgment and a lot of othering of our students. Instead, can we go do home visits? And the teachers that I've worked with, as they've done relational home visits, they've seen that regardless of the poverty that a family may be facing, they make a great effort. They make a sign to welcome the teacher. They offer the teacher lunch. They, you know, and so you get to see like, families from their asset orientation um, and get to build build relationships with those families. And so you, you start with relationship building. And as you're having some of those conversations, the needs of the families will come up. And then you should start trying to meet those needs as if families articulate them to you. So maybe they talk about needing school supplies, but also we shouldn't assume that they need school supplies because Sometimes that, you know, or actually in many cases I have seen, that is the first thing that families are buying with these. They value education very much. That's one of the reasons that they migrated here. It is a very high priority. And so if we think what they need is school supplies and they are like, no, we sacrifice everything to provide school supplies, then you have, you know, that sort of disconnect. And so you should really be connected to see what they need. And one school that I worked with, as they started doing some of those relational relational home visits, they um, got to know the families. What came of it is they really learned that the families wanted to learn to speak English. And so they started a program. They got a community partner and a grant and started a program to teach English at night to the parents. And then they were able to offer um care for the students that care include tutoring for the students and English classes for the parents. And it was a real community center where the parents who were signed up for the English classes started a potluck and started bringing dinner and started viewing the school as a community center. But that grew out of them building relationships and realizing that what the family wanted is, is they wanted people to learn English. And so they offered what the family wanted and they built a very strong relationship with the community and then were able to make some academic gains with students, but it was all based from what that community wants. So, you know, would I recommend that that other school start with English classes for parents? No, that may not be what those parents want. So it's about building relationships, finding out what they want and then finding a way to offer that. Yeah, that's a wonderful example. All right, we'll shift gears a little bit. Uh, time's unique because it's both a structure and a resource. So let's examine it as a structure first. Um, and, and that means looking at when we offer opportunities for working with families. So how do we do that in a way that meets people's schedules, which are wildly diverse? Yes. So it just has to, it just has to be that we offer many opportunities because people's schedules are wildly diverse. <laughs> but like you said, it, it can be in having a conversation with families about what are good times for them, knowing in your community, what is a good time. Um, and so yes, PTA 
people might like to meet in the evening on a weeknight. That would be great. Other families might really need a Saturday morning opportunity. And so are you offering various opportunities? And so that then, you know, my school leader brand immediately goes to, well, but our teachers would have to would have to be there on Saturday morning. That's right. Can you trade them a half a teacher workday sometime so that they can be there when is a good time for families and engage in, in families? And so I think it's it's also about valuing the teacher's time because if you have if, if you have a bunch of resentful people there to engage <laughs> families, it's not gonna go so well. Yeah. Um, so I've seen many schools like you use their teacher work days for the relational home visits that we were talking about. That is time set aside and you have to figure out when to do PD elsewhere, but you figure that out because oh a teacher work day is is a good time to go visit family. So it's really about offering a breadth of opportunities and then being in touch with families and saying when is a good time for you. So much of this work is really grounded in being very flexible in stepping back and and realizing everything I know and everything I've experienced isn't actually working. It's not the whole answer. There's lots of stuff that I'm missing now. And so I've got to be vulnerable enough. I've got to be open enough and think creatively and, and talk to people and put myself out there, which incidentally is the same mindset that you need to address so many other challenges in schools, right? So while there's specific techniques that and specific knowledge that really is pertinent to what we're talking about with growing those um, family and community partnerships, the mindset part of it, it's the same set of skills for dealing with all of the, the really the overwhelming challenges that we're all facing right now, right? Because what we did doesn't, it just doesn't work. And, um, and we've got to figure out more ways and we're not going to get there alone. We've got to stand back and be vulnerable and ask questions and ask questions like, no, I really need help. I need to hear your ideas. I don't have the preformed answer. Yes, absolutely. And I think what we see is that it can build efficacy. Um, and, and I'm going to relate this to a teacher example, but it, it's true of school leaders as well. Um, I worked with a teacher who had that kid that she had heard so many stories about. And, you know, as a teacher, you try not to hear those things, but then again, you've heard those things that this, this kid is coming in my class this year. And so she just decided that right off from the start in the summer, she was going to build a relationship with the student's family. And she had an entirely different experience than the other teachers had had because that family already knew um, that they cared for her child and or that the teacher cared for their child. And so she had a, a very different experience. Now, did the students still have documented behavior concerns that needed a lot of support? Yes. A student still had documented behavior concerns that needed a lot of support, but the partnership with the family was, was critical. And the teacher really reported it was about using consistent language and redirecting him in the same way that 
his family redirecting him and having some of those structures and then sharing conversations between home and family. And so I think that can be very true for leaders as well. When you get into being able to do this and you start seeing these experiences and you get that opportunity where the family tells you something that they need and you're able to provide something that they need and you see how much they appreciate that, then your own efficacy is so much higher and you see, oh, well, how the ball can really get rolling now because we do have this open and honest relationship where I'm, I'm going to be able to make a difference for my students because I am connected to what their community needs are. Yeah, that, that reminds me of something my uh, former superintendent, Dr. Jan Osborne, told me. Uh, he, he'd offered me the job of special ed coordinator for a um, rural consortium of, uh, I think, 11, 10 or 11 very small rural districts. And, and I'd been a special ed teacher for about three years, <laughs> didn't have a huge background in it. Um, it was one of those add-on things. So he offered me the job. I said, Jan, I just, I don't understand all the law, right? Because that's what you hear of special education. If you're a special education coordinator, it's all the legal stuff. Yeah. He said, Frederick, people don't sue you because you didn't follow the law. They sue you because they feel disrespected. And you could do everything right and follow the law and you could still get sued. You'll probably win, but you still get sued, right? So it, it is about those relationships and people want to be heard and they want to be respected. That's and, right. And, yeah. And I think that's critical. And, and the other piece, just going to say it, it sounds obvious, but we need to keep it in mind. When a teacher really cares about a kid and respects the kid, that kids know that kids know when they're respected. And if the kid knows that that's probably going to get home to the family as well. And I know, and it's not just about, Oh, I care for this kid. We all care for the kids, but do you really respect the kid and do you value the child? Do you value where they're coming from? Because if you do that now, you, now you're a step ahead instead of a step behind. That's right. It's, it's again about that asset orientation, about the student and their family and seeing them for what their strengths are and for what they have rather than what they don't have. And having that asset orientation about the student, but about their family and about their community and seeing the assets in the community and how your school can serve with those assets in mind and towards those goals. And just another element of it right now that I think is, is a very critical at least our public schools in our area, is this conversation of market share and how we're in a very different place than we were a decade ago where we need to convince our families to go to our school. And similar to what you were saying about why you get sued, families don't leave your school if they feel like they're part of it. They leave your school because they feel like they're not part of it. That's good. Okay. I had this, I had this vision for this interview that we would, we'd like follow this straight path, but of course, nothing's like that. So, so again, we've, we've dug in and I love today. I think there are a lot of concrete things to pull away as we start to wrap this up. 
could you, for, for assistant principals that are listening out there that really have been, wow, this is good. Okay. I definitely want to go in deeper than, than what I'm in. Can you give our assistant principals one thing they should read? one question that they should really reflect on because it's summer so they can go to the beach or the mountain or wherever like what's one critical question you should really be thinking on and then what is the first action that you should take when you get back to school and we know none of these things are going to change everything but I'd, i'd like them to have three just a to b just tiny steps that will be progress so what should they read what questions should they be thinking about and what what action should they take when they get back in the building? Excellent. Uh, I love that idea of just, just how do we get the ball rolling? Where do we get started? Um, so the one thing that I am going to recommend that, that you read is actually an article rather than a book. Um, it is a new article that just came out in the Journal for Research on Leadership Education. It is about Stanley and Gilzine. And it is called Listening, Engaging, Advocating, and Partnering, which is LEAP a model for responsible community engagement for educational leaders. That is a really, really good article that talks about this asset orientation, about the need to think of families as communities and how you should get started with listening and engaging so that you are able to advocate and partner. Um, and so that that article, I'll, I can send you the citation, highly recommend uh, that, that they start with reading that article. We'll put a link and, to that in the show notes. Perfect. Yes. And uh, then um, uh, the question that I think they should partner, I mean, they should ponder is what structures in my school need to be changed so that we can partner with families. And so we talked about several today. We talked about how meetings are scheduled, how events are scheduled, who is included in school improvement teams, who's included in equity audits. Nobody's going to be able to change all of that in one year. But what structures in my school need to change so that we can partner with families? That's, that's really the question that, that I would say think about and start in one of those places, um, just depending on what you think is a, is a good next step for, for your school. Um, and, then, and then one place to start, it would be with, again, I'm going to presume that you and your teachers are doing some beliefs work, because if not, start there. Um, and you need to make sure that you're Equity, diversity, and inclusion beliefs work includes families in addition to students. So like that's step one. But many, many schools, school leaders who are listening to this podcast that they're doing that. Mm -hmm. So then your next step is going to be how am I modeling this partner partnership orientation to my teachers? So rather than start by asking your teachers to do anything think of how am I modeling this? So that might be how the IEP meetings are scheduled. Like you said, that might be I'm the assistant principal who is, you know, organizing school improvement agendas and I'm going to connect with these community partners and we're going to start having our school improvement team members go to some of these community partners meetings or something. But what is it that I, as an assistant principal, 
am doing to model that I have a partnership orientation for families. That is where I would start. I love it. And, and again, we're not going to turn the whole ship in a year and there's so much else going on. So you don't have to change everything. I think if you just start to change how you're scheduling things and you change your language as a leader about how you're talking about families and opposed to what we need from families, how, how do we serve our families? How do we, how do we build on the capital that our families bring to our community? If we just start changing that language and changing the scheduling, those are huge first steps. Absolutely. And that and doesn't show that model. Yeah. And it doesn't take, I mean, scheduling may take some time process wise. It doesn't take any more time. Now when you meet might might change, but it, it really is attending to the way you think. Absolutely. Yes. And, and it is about, um, setting it up so that so that your teachers know that that's important to you because also we talked about power dynamics in the beginning but their teachers want to please their evaluators and so your model as a school leader is very important to what your teachers will do what your teachers will see as priority and where they will put their energy yeah Going back to my former superintendent again, he's a very, just incredibly wise man because uh, another thing he said that I think relates to this, I, I was in his office probably on a Friday afternoon and I was complaining about a parent um, as we sometimes do. And, and he said, Frederick, that parent did not get out of bed that morning and say, I'm going to be an angry person. I'm going to be a bad parent, Right that person is doing the best they can. You may want them to do something different or you may think they should be doing better, but they're doing the best they can and, and you need to accept that. And I, it took me a little while to really understand what he was saying, but once I made that switch, like it really changed the way I work with parents. It changed the relationship because I stopped judging and just began accepting. And, and so trying to meet, okay, where is the parent? Where do I need to meet them so that we can have that partnership and work together, which is very different from me making judgments and me making assumptions. So I, I think that's that other part of modeling is we need to stop judging our parents. Everybody's doing the best they can. We're doing the best we can. We have a lot of all of us are having some really hard days and hard times. And I think one of the bright sides of everything is there are a lot more people out here in the world willing to give each other grace. Yes. And, and so we need to extend that to our parents. And I think the first step of what that looks like is not judging. It's not, your, it's not, it's not relevant. It's where is somebody right now? They're doing the best they can. So how do we work with them? in that, in that way. Absolutely. And I think another important element there is to realize that the reaction that they're having is not necessarily a reaction towards you, your leadership or anything you did. 
but rather a reaction to their experiences in education and education as a system. And so that's the other thing in, in meeting the parent where they are is not personalizing it because it's not a reaction to you. It's a reaction to the educational system. And when we can think of it that way, we all know the educational system has problems. That's why we're doing the work we're doing. We're trying to fix them. And so the parent is not mad at you. The parent is mad at the system. And you're the representative of the system. So, That's right. Yeah, yep. yeah, great yep. point. It's not about you, which can help in so many other things as as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, let's start to wrap this up. I have three final questions for you. First, what part of your own leadership are you still trying to get better at? Or I guess, what are you going to be focusing on this summer? Are you reading any, doing any professional reading? Yes, yes, I am. Um, I am actively uh, learning a lot about critical whiteness theory um, and really digging into um, really digging into what it is um, about common practices in the schools that reflect, um, white cultural norms and therefore ostracize students and, and families. Um, and so that's something that I'm doing a lot of reading and, re and reflecting on um, over this summer is, is really um, how do we identify more of those things so that, you know, we have to see them to be able to do anything about them. So how do we identify what more, more of those things are? So I, personally, I'm doing a lot of, a lot of uh, reflection on my own critical consciousness. Okay. I, I would joke, I wanted to joke that, oh, some light reading, but that, right. that is critical, <laughs> but that's critical work. Um, we can't see, we can't do anything about the things we don't see. And there's so many things we don't see because it, they're just the assumptions that we operate on. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. If listeners could take just one thing away from today's podcast, what would it be? I think it is about how you approach families as a leader. So it is the partnership orientation. And as a school leader, you are setting up systems and structures. And so as you are, you know, rather than repeating, you know, last year we had PTA meetings at this time and this place, and we're going to do it again. This is always the first Tuesday or whatever. Like, how do we change our systems? in a way that shows a partnership orientation and meets families' needs. And so as a school leader, you are the person in the position to make adjustments to those systems in order to create a partnership orientation. I love it. Okay. And last then, is there, oh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? Um, I, I would just want to reiterate something that we've we've said um, before, but this is this is not a change that anybody is going to make in one school year. Um, and so, look for what you can do. Look for what is possible. Look for what structures can be adjusted. Look for opportunities to seek community voice. But realize that that you know nothing huge is going to change in one school year. Um, so just have reasonable expectations for what will be, what you'll be possible to model in one year. Yeah. That said, 
if you really do adapt your perspective and and start really viewing parents as necessary partners and model that vulnerability and start to look for ways not to engage them, but for you to engage with them, that, that will make a difference. It's like those ripples, right? It's a little pebble that goes in that pond, but those kinds of ripples spread out. And, and ultimately the community is made of individuals. And if we're treating individuals consistently and well, and they're feeling valued, pe- not feeling, people know that they're valued and they know that the school is now saying, like, help us help the, the families. We, we're here to serve this, the, the community but we need to know better what, what that looks like and how we work with people that, that will pay dividends. Yes. I want to say you can't uh, change too many structures in one year, but if you model a partnership orientation and really solicit a lot of waste from families, you could be in an entirely different place where you could do a lot more next year this time. I think that goes back to the big message from the last episode we did, right? Change begins within. That's right. Yes. Okay. And, it, and, it, and it's not about doing more. It's about doing it differently. That'll be the quote for, for this year, for this podcast. Yes. All yes. right, Leanne, it's been great. Thanks so much for taking time today. Absolutely. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on again. All right. And, and I'm sure we'll have you back another time too. Maybe we'll dig into some of that summer reading that you're doing. Sure, I'd be happy to. Okay. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and rate this podcast. Really, rating the podcast will help people find it. I'm always trying to improve the show, so if you have feedback, please email me at frederick at frederickbusky.com. If you'd like more content tailored towards the needs of assistant principals, you can head over to the website, frederickbusky.com backslash T-A-P, which stands for the assistant principal. We've redone the website and and trying to really focus down on assistant principals. So frederickbusky.com backslash T-A-P. I'm hoping I get that right. That wraps up today's show. I'm Frederick Buskey, and I hope you'll join me next time for the assistant principal podcast.